Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening and may God bless you abundantly. We're back into the parables of Jesus. And we are coming to a close. We're coming to an end. We're starting to wind down. Um, there's only a few more that I'm thinking about preaching on as of right now. So last week, what did we talk about? Forgiveness. Yeah, going to your brother. The unrepentant sinner. Remember, the king had a servant who owed him. We, we estimated our time, our, our, our currency, about $32.2 trillion. That's 10 years of of tax collection for the country. And so that was the same for him. And he was forgiven completely. He couldn't pay it back. And the king said, I forgive you. And what does he do? He goes to another slave and says, he demands that he pays back the $14,000 that he owed him. And he beats him and throws him into prison. It was his whole truth, his whole heart of that we have been forgiven of much. So therefore we should be forgiving others. Right? There's nothing that anybody has ever done to us that even comes close to what we have done against the holy God. And so we need to be a people of forgiveness. But we saw that it was in the context of rebuking and forgiveness and repentance. Right? If your brother sins against you, we go to them. If they repent, what do we do? We forgive. We, we, nothing happens after that. Right? We forgive them. We move on in one body. If they refuse, what do we do? We bring one or two witnesses, not gang members, witnesses, they sit in, they listen, they don't say nothing, they listen to you rebuking this, if it's biblical rebuke or not, they listen to the repentance or lack of repentance, they're there to witness, they're not there to join in, and so once that's happened, if they repent, we forgive, if they don't, we take it before the elders, if they don't repent, listen to the elders, we take it before the church, and we cast them off, and send them into this world, and hand them over to Satan and treat them like tax collectors and Gentiles. We don't eat with them. We don't hang out with them. We don't invite them to birthday parties. We send them into this world. Why? Three reasons. Remember, the purity of the church. Second, the witness and testimony of the church to the world, right? The world's ready for us to clean out the hypocrisy from within and stop looking at them before we start looking at ourselves, right? And then the third is that we hope and pray that as he goes into this world, that he experiences the weight of his sin. He understands, he gets to taste and see all that his lifestyle wants, uh, brings to him, and he ends up being destitute and desperate and realizing, wow. I made a mistake. I had it so much better under the provision and protection of my father in the church. And he comes back, and if he repents, we forgive. forgive. We don't hold him in a corner. We don't put a little name on him. We don't put a little big A on his chest and say, this person's shamed. No, we forgive. He's in the the family again. And so this morning, we're going to kind of jump on that concept, and we're actually, what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be talking about this, this person sent off. Right, the person who chooses to live this lifestyle. We're going to look at one of the most popular parables in the Bible, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son. 
right? So we're going to look at that. Now, here's the, here's the challenge for me. The challenge for me is that most of us in this room have heard this sermon over and over again, right? We've probably heard 20 sermons on this. Every pastor, lo- and it's a good one. I, I'm not blaming pastors. This is a good parable. And so you've heard sermon after sermon and lesson after lesson and Bible study after Bible study. You probably read books on it. And so the temptation for me is, well, I got to create something new. Like, I got to make it more exciting. I got to make it different. I got to add a twist to it so that y'all are like, wow, I never knew that. Like, but as I'm praying about it, I mean, that's just my own flesh. Because the reality is, is this parable is so amazing. And it is so good to be reminded of these truths because we are just like the Israelites as much as we don't want to say we are, that once God performs a miracle today, tomorrow we forget. And we're back grumbling. And so it's always good to be reminded of the truths of God. And so we're going to be studying Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 15, verse 11. Now, while you're turning there, a little context of where this parable is. So what happens is Jesus is teaching. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why are you hanging out with these wicked people? Right? They start rebuking Jesus for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Basically, you're hanging out with Satan's people. You're hanging out with the wicked. You're hanging out with these, 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 these people, these destitute people that need to, to work themselves back to the righteousness, but right now they're wicked and they're sinners. And so Jesus goes into a trilogy of parables. He goes into the lost sheep. He goes into the lost coin. And then he goes into the lost son. Now, in the lost sheep and lost coin, what we see is actually the, God's focus or the focus on God's response and salvation. Right? The first parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin are all about how God chases the sinner, how God goes after the sinner, that the, the, the shepherd goes after the sheep, the woman goes after the coin, and it's a whole idea that God so loved the world that he went after you, he sent his son for you to die for you, that Jesus came not as, not for the healthy, but as a, as a doctor for the sick, right? He came after us. And so it's all about God's response, God's action on us. But the parable of the prodigal son, is about our response and our job or our responsibility in salvation. Mainly, we are sinners, right? We are sinners. We have rejected God. We need to repent, and we need to turn back to God. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, now the the title actually causes us to miss the actual purpose, right? It's actually a confusing title because the story is not about one son and the father, The story is about two wicked sons and a loving, gracious father. So the idea of even naming it the prodigal son, somebody said the parable of the two sons. That's That's a better title because it's really not about one son. It's about two rebellious sons and one loving father. And in order to understand this parable, I love this parable. It's an amazing parable. It's, I love it because it's so easy that I could teach my three-year-old. In fact, when I was, she asked me what we were preaching on, and I said, the, the prodigal son. And she's like, what's the prodigal son? I said, well, and I explained it to her, and she's like, oh, that's good. And then she goes, beats up her sister. So, but she understood the parable. We got to work on the Good Samaritan. But she understood it. It's so basic and so simple. But yet, this is actually one of the most complex, one of the most intense parables that Jesus actually teaches. It's the most complex parable that Jesus actually teaches. And the way that it becomes complex is we've got to know something about the culture. 
One of the temptations for us when we're reading the Bible is to jump right into first century, 21st century America when we read the Bible. And that's not a bad thing. It's just natural, right? We, this is the culture we live in. So this is the eyes, the lens which we see things. So when we read the Bible, we immediately grab the Bible. And we immediately put it into our context. We immediately try to apply it to us. The problem with that is Jesus is speaking to first century Jews in a specific culture, in a specific context. And so when we do that, we could actually miss much of what Jesus is trying to say and actually get to the danger of distorting the actual message of Jesus. Especially when it comes to salvation, that's a very dangerous thing. So one of the things that we need to know about this culture is that this story, once again, about a son, a younger son, a father, and an older son, their whole goal in life is to bring honor upon their family and to avoid shame at all costs. That's the culture of this world. This is this worldview. Shame and honor. Now, it's not like ours. We live in a guilt-innocent culture, right? We live in a guilt-innocent. Mainly, everything we do is labeled guilty or innocent. You try to live a life, be innocent and not guilty. And along with that comes this individualistic mentality, meaning like if my brother, okay, so I got a brother, I got a younger brother, I've got four brothers, and, and say my younger brother, he goes out and robs somebody and gets arrested, okay? He's guilty. Now, does that affect me? I mean, I guess I'm mean, sad about it. I'm like, oh, what happened to him? I'm sorry. But it doesn't affect me. Y'all, y'all aren't going to come up here and say, David, I think you need to step down as a pastor because your brother has been arrested, right? No, you would say, wow, you and your brother are like complete opposites. You're so perfect, and he's just, <laughs> you guys are different, right? There would be no reflection on me. It wouldn't, bear, it wouldn't hold this responsibility on my back, but, but that's not the case, with shame, honor. We've got to get this through our head because the whole sermon, the whole message is rooted in this mentality that shame and honor, your entire life is to try to bring honor to your family. And this is not just in first century Israel. This is all over the world today. We see this in in, in the Middle East. We see this in Asian countries. We see this in China. We see this in areas. This is why uh, you have this whole emphasis, especially on, on Asian uh, communities and Asian cultures, where the kids go to school and they've got to be the best and they get great education and then they go to college and they get the doctorate. Why? Because they're doing so and they're working hard because it's not about them. It's about their family. They're trying to bring honor to their family. Everything I do either brings shame or brings honor to my family, and I do not want to bring shame because if I do something, whether it's a sin or whether it's something bad in the community, I shame the entire family, and it runs so deep that now the patriarch, the father, has to do something with his child in order to restore honor. The child either has to work his way back and be shamed in front of all the public, be shamed and dishonored in front of everybody, and then work his way back to honor so the family once again has honor. Or just like right now in Islamic countries, you have Muslims coming to Christ, and what happens? The father takes the child who came to Christ, and they either put him in front of everybody and stone him, or the father will take boiling hot oil or water and pour it on their heads. So now they have the scars of the shame that they brought upon the family. They do that or they dis, they dis uh, communicate them or even worse, sometimes they will kill them. Why? Because all to bring honor back to my family. Because that shame, that person's action shamed us. And either he responds or she responds to bring honor back by working, by working, by working and being embarrassed and being shamed in front of the whole community. Or we have to do something by cutting them off and getting them out. 
to bring honor. And everything this parable is talking about is rooted in this truth of shame and honor. And what you're going to see is the younger brother represents the shameful. The older brother, in the eyes of the Pharisees, and in the eyes of the culture, represents the honorable. And so it's rooted in that culture, everything they would do. So let's read. With that in mind, we got to remember that, let it sink in. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and 12. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So the father, he divided to them his livelihood. Okay, so you have two sons, right? And once again, the younger son represents the shameful. And the the idea actually of prodigal is an archaic term. It just means extravagantly self-indulgent living, a reckless, wasteful. It's a reckless, wasteful person. But you have this son, and he asks the father. The first thing he does is he asks the father of a shameful request. He says, Father, divide the inheritance with me. Divide the inheritance with me. Now, this would have been a shock to everybody listening. This would have been a shock to everybody listening because what this request was, was not only disrespectful, but it was a lack of gratitude to the Father. It was a lack of gratitude for all that the Father has provided. Not to mention it was a break of the fifth commandment, which is thou shalt honor your father and mother. And so he says, give me my inheritance, the one-third portion, right? Because he's the younger son, so he gets one-third of the estate. The the older brother, the protocost, gets two-thirds of the estate. And so he's give me my money. Give me my estate. Give me my portion. And this is where the father, the father should have slapped him. The father, this was, he was just dishonored. He was just, and, and, and this interesting about the word here for, for estate. Everywhere else, there's a, there's a Greek word that just means estate. But the word that he uses here is oseus, which is literally, basically, he's saying, I want to liquidate my estate. I don't want to, to, to work it. I don't want my portion so I could farm it the way I want to farm it. I don't want to be participating in the family business or the farm. I want to sell off my property because I no longer want to be a part of the family. I no longer want to work for this family. I no longer want to benefit this family. I want to sell it off and I want to do with what I want to do. And as long as the father was alive, the father had control of the state. The son is telling, basically in essence telling his father, you living is getting in my way. You being alive is in my way, right? Because I can't get my money until you die. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead because I want this money, right? And so, you know, everybody who's listening to this would have been blown away by what Jesus is saying here, especially when Jesus tells the response of the Father. What does he say the Father does? He grants the request. Like, this is unheard of. Like, in this culture, man, every father, every patriarch, in order to restore honor, this is done. I'm going to slap you, and I'm not only going to slap you, I'm going to disinherit you. You get nothing. You get nothing. In the eyes of the Pharisees, that's what the father should have done. But when the father gave the money in the eyes of the Pharisees, now the father is acting shameful. Now the father is actually acting in shame. But what this is showing is that our Heavenly Father actually allows, gives us the freedom to choose our wicked sin. One of the biggest questions that we get as Christians is why, if this God is so good, 
why is there so much evil in the world? If God is so good, why does he allow so much evil? Because God is so good that he gives us the freedom to choose it. Look, if you said, I wish God would stop all evil in the world, we would all be dead by like eight, right? Some of y'all would still be sleeping, but your dreams would cause you to be dead, right? All of us would be dead. God is so good that he gives us the freedom to choose him or to choose evil. It goes on and he says, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so now you have this this son. He gets the money. He gets the, the land. A couple of days later, probably took him some time to liquidate his land, got the money, jetted off. So now you have this, this, this son who not only dishonors his family, not only walks away from his, his responsibilities to his family, not only goes off and lives this wasteful spending life, this wasteful sinful life, but now he goes to a foreign land to do it, a Gentile nation. All of these wickedness, shameful after shameful after shameful. Why did he go to a foreign land to enjoy his sin? Because in a foreign land, he is not held accountable to his shame. In a foreign land, he's not held accountable to anybody who knows him. His his father's not near there. He's not convicted by his brother. He's not convicted by his family, not convicted by the community. He's not shamed. He's able to go somewhere and to live and enjoy his sin freely. This happens all the time, guys. This idea that, that, that... Unbelievers, guys, the reason why people do not want to believe in God is because we do not want to be answerable to God. The Bible says in Romans, it says that in Romans that God has made himself clearly known. We know there's a God. You cannot help but look at your, what was it? I think Einstein said, you need no other evidence about a God other than your thumb. I think it was Einstein, one of those guys. And he says, your thumb, just all you need is just a look. And unless your heart is so hardened that you don't want there to be a God, you will see God. Unless you don't want there to be a God because you don't want the accountability of God. You don't want to sit under the laws of God. You don't want to sit under his rules and restrictions. You don't want to sit under his will and his kingdom. I don't want that. I want to go live in my world where God is dead and we killed him, like Nietzsche says. Right? And so we even see this in the church. Have you guys ever like been around like somebody coming into the church um, and they, they're really active or they get involved and then you become friends with them and they go to the potlucks and they go and hang out, they go and visit with you guys and then all of a sudden they stop? All of a sudden they stop coming to church as much? They stop answering your phone calls? They stop hanging out, they stop doing it and then you're like, what's going on? Where have you been? Where, where, where are you? And, you, and you start kind of worrying about them because they're distancing themselves. Why did they leave? Then you find out that they were cheating on their wife. Find out that she got a boyfriend and they ended up going off and sleeping together. 
They got back into their drugs. They got back into their alcohol. They got back into their, their pornography. They got back into their stuff. They got back into partying. And then they do not want to be under the umbrella of accountability of the church. And so they go off to their foreign land. They get away from the accountability. They get away from anybody who knows them as in this context so that they can enjoy their sin without shame, guilt, and condemnation. And they can sit in it. This is why we even see in the church today, we see a movement of the new age Christianity. It's witchcraft. It's garbage. We see this deconstructionalism going on in the church where we're deconstructing everything we believe, everything we hold on to. Why? Because if we can deconstruct it, if we can get rid of it, if we can get rid of the morals, get rid of hell, get rid of the law, get rid of anything that condemns or convicts or challenges who we are as people and what we want to do, then we can enjoy Jesus and still live in our sins. It's all about getting away from conviction rather than repentance. Now, what's interesting about this, as I said before, this is not about one brother. This is about two brothers. The question that arises is, where's the older brother? Because the older brother should have this moment as a brother who loves his father, as a son who loves his father, as a brother who loves his brother, he should have stepped in right now. He should have been involved right now. He should have stepped in and said, Dad, what are you doing? We don't, I don't want your money. I don't want this. Don't, don't divide the inheritance. No, no. We need to, I'm going to go talk to my brother and knock him out. Like, knock him out. Like, this is, needs to stop right now. Father, don't bring the shame upon you. Why are you letting him shame? The father, the older brother should have stepped in to protect the honor, to protect the love of the father. But he doesn't. He's not there. Why? Because he, we're starting to see that the older brother does not have have a love for his father. The older brother actually wants the same thing that the younger brother does, but he takes a different path. So here is the younger brother off spending it on prostitutes, on wasteful living, on, on alcohol and partying, and it says that he lost everything. All the people that were hanging out with him because he had the money, because he was providing the opportunities, everybody that he was partying with all left him. He's by himself, bankrupt, destitute, He's got nothing to offer. And then a severe famine comes. And for the first time, he is in desperate need. Why? Because for the first time in this son's life, he walked away from the provision and the protection of the covering of his father. This is the first time that he is out from the covering and the protection and provision of his father. And when the storms come, when the, 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 the famine comes, when he runs out of resources, he has nothing to turn to. Because this is why I, I get so heartbroken about people who choose to go off and walk in their sins. Because you have no protection. You have no covering. When you're in this world and you're living for this world, you're only valuable as the currency that you provide. Your only value in this world, your only means of acceptance, your only means of hope and strength is the value of the currency that you provide. Meaning, if you have money, then that's currency for this world. And you're valuable. This is why people with money, they, they need more, right? They need more, they need more, they need more. They need to buy the newer house. They need to buy the newer car. They need to buy this. Why? Because this is currency. This is what makes you valuable. But what happens if you lose it? You're not valuable. This is why we see in our culture a big movement on looks, right? Looks are a currency in this world that gets you value. TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, it's all about, I can get millions of people just to look at me because I've got value. I've got currency in my face, in my booty. I've got currency. What happens when gravity wins? Because it will win. 
Gravity will start yanking on things and pulling on things and tugging on things. And then you try to fight it by tucking and pulling and tightening and and stapling. And then it never really looks good. It looks weird. And you lose your currency. Then all of a sudden, the currency that brought you hope and that brought you life and brought you friends and brought you popularity and brought you acceptance into this world is gone. You're done. You're left destitute. You have nothing to turn to. Why? Because you're not under the protection and provision of God. You're not labeled. Your identity is not a child of God under his resources, under his protection, under his covering. You are out in your own world living by based off of the currency of this world, which is fading. And it's sad. It's sad. And so you hear you have this older son left, and what does he do? He decides, I'm going to go to this guy and get a job as, as feeding pigs. I'm going to go feed pigs. Now, as a Jew, this is the most degrading job ever possible as a Jew. In fact, the rabbis of rabbinical teachings taught that anybody who handles swines is cursed. So now you have a man feeding pigs, and it says he's so hungry that he was like trying to eat the pods from the pig. Could you imagine this dude wrestling pigs for food? And it says that nobody gave him anything, which means that people were walking by, looking at him. And they're like, baby, don't look, don't look, baby. Go turn your eyes, all right? Like, people were actually, I mean, I don't blame them. Like, honestly, imagine you walk by a pig slop and you see some dude wrestling a pig for the food. I mean, he's lost everything. He's wrestling pigs. And guys, what this is, is a picture. This is a picture of somebody before salvation, that you must get to this place. You must become a person who sees themselves as a rebellious sinner against the Father. You must see yourself as a person who has walked away and has been given all kinds of gifts from the Father and went into this world and squandered them on this worldly living. Have been given all kinds of common grace talents and you use them on your own self-indulgence. And then you come to a point where you realize, I have dishonored my father. I've brought shame to my father. I've brought shame to God. And it's that place when you're sitting as an unrepentant sinner with no hope. And that's when he goes into the next step of salvation. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. So he starts to remember his father's generosity. He starts to remember that his father not only gave his common laborers enough, he gave them more than enough. His father was generous. His father was gracious. He starts to remember this, and he starts to think about this. And then he starts to recite this, this thing in his head as he's getting ready to recite this, this what he's going to say to his father. He says, but I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So finally, he comes to his senses. And he remembers his father, how he took care of the the hired hands. And at this point, he decides he's going to go back home. And at this point, the Pharisees are listening to this and saying, good. This is what should happen. He should come back home and he should be shamed in front of everybody. The whole village should be watching this guy walk in his shame, be, be dishonored, maybe even disinherited, and he needs to stand before the Father. He needs to confess all his junk, all of his stuff. 
And then maybe he's forgiven, but only, only once he makes, makes penance, once he, he actually makes restitution and works his way back to honor the family. Basically, they believed, just like many religions believe today, just like the Jehovah's Witness, we talked about this last week, that when you go off as a prodigal and you come back, they have a little room in the wall where you go and you sit in this room with a little hole in the wall to watch the sermon, and you guys can't look at them, you can't smile at them, you can't talk to them because they're shamed. And they need to work themselves and prove themselves back to the fellowship of believers. And that's what the Pharisees believe should happen. What the younger son did, what the younger son was proving was this is how you get to salvation. This is how you get to salvation. You come to the end of yourself. You see the shame. You wished your, your father was dead. You lived with a lack of accountability. You came, became destitute. And then you got hopeless and realized, I have nowhere else to turn. I have to turn to the father. I have to turn to God. And you turn your eyes to God. See, nobody comes to the father as a good son. Nobody comes to the father as a good person. In order to approach and be saved and be transformed by the father, you come as a prodigal. And he arose and came to his father. But when he still was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, you know what separates Christianity from every other religion? The son went to the father to be reconciled and he was prepared to work his way to reconciliation and the grace of his father. If I work hard enough and I earn it back, if I work long enough and if I do enough stuff, then maybe my father will receive me. Maybe my father will forgive me. Maybe my father will accept me. If I make homage, if I go to Mecca, if I pray five times a day, if I say my Hail Marys, if I, if I go and go knock on the doors and do my ministry, if I go on mission for two years after I turn 18, if I do these certain things, then maybe, just maybe my father will accept me. Basically, what we see here is this is what should have happened. The father should have made him make restitution, made him work. The, the son's idea of what he was going to have to do to make restitution and be forgiven by the father is every other religion's idea of how they get restitution and are forgiven by the father. Every religion believes like the son believes. This is what I must do. This is what I must do. And yet what do we see with the son? What do we see with the father? It says that the son came and the father saw him from a far distance. Now at this point, I'll tell you what's supposed to happen. The son is supposed to sit outside the wall. He's not allowed in to see the father until the father lets him see the father. You sit out the wall and you sit there for days. And you, let, you feel the shame. You feel the guilt. You let the people all in the community walk by and see you sitting there like a shameful little rat you are. Then maybe, just maybe, you come in and your father might let you talk to him now, but he's going to give you a cold response 
And you can say your little speech and your little spiel. And the father's going to say, here's what you must do. And this is how long it must take. And if you do this, then maybe you can be restored as a son of mine. Basically, what should have happened is what everybody believes does happen with God. A cold God who says, if you do this, then maybe, just maybe, I'll let you in. But the Father sees the Son, and Jesus destroys every cultural expectation. Everybody listening would have been shocked. They said the Father had compassion on him, and the Father started running to the Son. He started running to the Son. The Father, remember, I mean, they're in this culture, some of you guys have known this, but in this culture, when you're going to run, you got to gird your loins. When you gird your loins, you're exposing your legs. And as a nobleman, as a patriarch, you do not run through the village exposing your legs, especially after a son who just shamed and dishonored your family. You do not do this. And before the son could even get to the gate, before the son could even get to the wall, before he could feel one ounce of shame, the father beelines straight to the son and embraces him. And what he's saying, is before you can feel the shame, the guilt, the eyes looking upon you, I will clothe you and I will take the shame for you. I'm going to take the, I don't want you to feel shame. I will take your shame. Let the villagers look at me. Let them stare at me. Let them see what I'm doing. You're not going to feel this shame. And he says he embraces him, he hugs him, he kisses him, and the father just embracing, restoring him to full sonship. And then the son goes with his little speech. But what did the son leave out? He left out, make me one of your hired hands. Why? Because the father had already forgiven him. Because the son, the son knew he no longer had to work. He saw the grace, he saw the compassion, he saw the generosity, he saw the love, he saw the forgiveness in one moment of his father, and he knew he did not have to say for a second, make me one of your hands, because I know I don't have to work my way back to sonship, because you've already embraced me as son. You've already restored me back to sonship. This is why Paul gets so crazy with the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, who has bewitched you? Were you saved by the Spirit and now perfected by the works? Paul is saying, look, you were clothed, you were hugged, you were received by the Father, immediately forgiven. Could you imagine if this, the, the, the son is hugged, the son is restored, and then the next day, the father wakes up and looks out the window and the son is out there digging holes like a common laborer. And the father's like, what are you doing? He's like, I know you forgave me, but... I don't know. It's too good to be true. I don't know if I really believe you. And so I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to work my way to your love. Imagine what the father would do. Imagine how heartbroken the father would be. Paul says, who has bewitched you? Why are you now who are perfected by a spirit? You were perfected by grace. You were saved by grace, received and forgiven and reconciled by the grace of the loving of father. Why are you now trying to work your way to him? Why are you trying not to earn his love? You were received. You were restored to sonship, to daughterhood, fully by the grace 
of God. Period. Period. And the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Basically, the best robe. Who's the best robe belong to? First and foremost is the patriarch, is the father. That's his robe. He only wears it at wedding feet. He only wears it at prestigious events. That's his robe. He's about to throw a big old party. Who should wear that robe? The father. And the father takes his robe and clothes his son with his robe. What does Jesus do for us? He takes his robe. He takes his righteousness. And he clothes you, covers you, and puts his righteousness, his robe upon you. And the signet ring, the signet ring is a ring that just basically in this culture, you had this signet ring to stick in a stamp, to seal a document, to basically show authenticity that this was this is me and I have my backing. But when by him giving this signet ring to his son, he's saying all the privileges, all the rights, all the authority is yours. He's basically showing you are fully restored as my son. And every Pharisee, every listener would have been shocked because who actually inherits the ring? Who inherits the robe? The firstborn, the protocols, the son. That was his. He was supposed to wear that robe on his wedding day. That was his. Everybody's looking at the father and saying, this is shameful. This is dishonoring. This is, this is wicked. Then he kills the fattened calf and, and, he, and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead and is now alive again and was lost and is now is found and they began to be merry. Now, so this is kind of reference to the, the lost sheep. When, when one sinner repents and comes to salvation, it says that all of heaven erupts. Did you know that? Did you know that when you were saved, when we baptized you, when you were baptized in the name of Jesus, that all of heaven, every one of the angels started to shout praise? And this is why I get so frustrated whenever I show up at a, like I go to a baptism or something and everybody's like, he gets baptized or, or they, they, they come to salvation. Everybody's like, I'm like, what are you doing? Like all of heaven is erupting and the best you got is a golf clap? Like we celebrate. That's why we, we have potlucks and we have celebration and we worship and we, we rejoice that one of the lost sinners has come home. All of heaven erupts when a sinner repents and then you get to the older son. Right? The older son. Now the older son is Pharisees. They're not Christians. The older son is referring to the Pharisees. Remember, this is not about one wicked son and one Christian. This is about two wicked sons who did not love the father and a gracious, loving father. It says, now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come home, and because we have received him safely and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf, but he was angry. And would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to the father, Lo, all these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friend. But as soon as his son of yours come home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fattened calf. So what we see here is the older son 
is out working on the field. He finally comes home. He doesn't know about the restoration. He doesn't know about his son returning. He hears the party, hears the dancing, calls a slave. He explains it to him. And he sits outside angry. And now what we're seeing was, is the heart of this son being exposed. We're seeing a heart of the son being exposed because his father, while his father's inside rejoicing, joyfully celebrating that his son has come home, rejoicing over that, the, out, the older brother is sitting in, outside grumbling and angry, cannot rejoice with his father, cannot celebrate with his father, doesn't have a love for his father. He's sitting out angry. Why? Because in the eyes of everybody else, this is wicked and shameful. And I can't believe my father's acting this way. And I imagine if you're a Pharisee, imagine if you're a Pharisee, this guy's a hero. You're thinking, as a Pharisee, you're thinking, finally, somebody who gets it, right? Somebody who gets it. The father's been acting shameful. The son was wicked. He should have had to go through all this process. The older son is now acting honorable. He's, this, he's standing outside. He's not associating with these wicked sinners who have brought shame upon the family. I'm not participating in it. Finally, somebody who gets it. This man's the hero. And while they may have rejoiced over this man, Jesus' whole point is, this is you, Pharisee. Here I am going to the lost. Here I am sitting with the tax collectors. Here I am standing with the sick, and you're standing outside ridiculing me, mocking me, angry at me, because I would just, I would hang out with such a wicked people and forgive them so freely. You're the one who's hypocritical. You're the one who's got dead man's bones buried inside. You're the one. You see, both of these sons were wicked, but the problem was the son had convinced himself and others that he was not. And so the brother's outside. He's working. And what does he say? He says, all these years I've been working like a slave. Now that phrase, I've been working, is basically I have been slaving over you. It's It's a term that basically indicates that this older brother did not see his serving his father as honorable, did not see his serving his father from a motive of love. He saw him as one of his slaves. All these years I've been slaving. All these years I've been working. All these years I've been doing all of this, and yet you didn't give me one little goat to have fun with my friend. Starting to reveal his heart that I don't love you, God. I don't love you, Father. I've been slaving for you all for the blessings. I've been slaving for you all for the benefit. I've been slaving for you all for the honor and to maintain honor. But it was not out of a love for the Father. Both of these sons wanted the same thing, blessing. The older brother just decided a different route. Both of these brothers had wicked hearts towards the Father. The older brother just was good at concealing it and trying to do it in a way that would be honorable before Men, he says, I never neglected your command. I was one of the 99 righteous. I was one of the 99 righteous who never needed to repent. Right? And what does the father do? He says to him, son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost. And is found. What's interesting, what I love about this is because once again, the son, the older son, is now shaming the father. You don't speak to the father that way. You don't rebuke the father that way. 
You don't talk to the father that way. What should have happened? You should have slapped him right across the face, and you were, you, were, you were breaking the fifth commandment yourself. But even with the older son, the father uses a word, uh, huos, or huos, in the Greek, and it's the only time you see it in this one verse. Every other verse that we see is a different word for child, but our, our tech, technon, huos is every other word. Technon is the word he uses here, and it's an affectionate, tender child. As the son just dishonored his father by rebuking him, the father shows grace to the older son. And he says, dear sweet child, do you not get it? Just gently the father is showing grace to this older son, this hypocrite, this rebellious son in heart. And he's saying, do you not get it? You have had everything. You've sat under me and you've had all the blessings. You've had all the riches. Everything is mine, is yours. And he's talking about the Jews. The Jews, everything that was God's was yours. You had the blessings. You had the promises. You have the covenants. You had the word. You had the prophecies. All of my blessings was yours. You had it all. And now I'm bringing the wicked sinner home. I'm bringing your brother home. It's time to rejoice. The, the lost has come home. And that's the end of the story. The question now that arises is what happened? What happened to the older brother? Like, are we missing scripture? Like, are we, what happens to the older brother? Like, we don't know. And the, everybody's listening was like, you know, what, what, did the, what happened? To, what did he end up doing? Right? What did the older brother end up doing? Which is exactly the point. By Jesus not ending with a point, he's ending with a point. See, what Jesus is doing is he's letting everybody in the room listening to now walk away and reflect. Because right after this, Jesus leaves. He takes his disciples in pieces, right? He goes off into a different room and he teaches more parables with just his disciples. But everybody in the room is now sitting there wondering what's going on. They're being, they're being forced to be self-reflective, to self-examine. Basically, what Jesus is doing is he's leaving the Pharisees to be able to finish the story themselves. He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, how does this end? The son is standing outside in the cold, in the dark, angry because God has forgiven wicked sinners. You finish the stories, Pharisees. How does this end? And everybody who's listening has the same opportunity. How does this end? Does this end with the older brother falling to his face and repenting of his wicked pride and anger and jealousy and frustration and hypocrisy and lack of love? Or does it end with him standing out there bitter and hearted and wanting to preserve the honor of man over the love of God? You see, everybody in this room has an opportunity to finish this story. How does it end? How does it end? Does it end with the prodigal sitting in the mud with the pigs, fighting pigs for food? Destitute, broken, resting in your sin? Does it end there where you're just going to sit out there and curse God and die? Are you going to come home? 
Does it end with you standing, the self-righteous, wicked hypocrisy, standing before God loving the wicked, loving the sinner, loving the broken, and it stands with you saying, no, I'm not going to get to God unless I work for it because it's on me. It's my desires. You stand in that. Does it, stand, does it end with you standing outside? You see everybody in this room who is a believer, I'll tell you how it ends. It ends with you being inside with the Father, rejoicing celebrating with the robe of the Father, with the ring of the Father, with the sandals of the Father, eating his fattened calf. But everybody in this room who's not, the question is, is how does it end for you? How does it end for you? I mean, does it end with repentance and turning to the Father, your only hope, or does it end does it end with you standing outside in the cold? Does it end with you standing in the pig slop? Does it end? The choice is yours. The invitation of the banquet is still for all people. God sends it off. And it doesn't matter if you're an open sinner or a wicked sinner. You are so bad off that people literally pass by you because you're nasty and such a wicked sinner. Or you are so good at hiding your wicked sin by presenting self-righteousness. It doesn't matter. The Father sends out the invitation and he urges you to come to him. Revelation says, and the spirit of the bride says, come. He says, let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him come and take the water. You see, what's sad about this story is that it, this ends with the Pharisees by them standing outside and they put Jesus on the cross. That's how it ends with them. It ends with the older brother standing outside, grumbling, mad, angry. And if Jesus is the Father, which he is in this story, offering his righteous clothes, and he's the Father in this story, I'll tell you how it really ends. It ends with the Father coming out and the older son taking a bat and beating him over the head because that's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. That's how it ends for them. So I'm going to finish us with this question. How does it end for you? How does this end for you? 